Hey Real Life Church, I uh, hope you're all well. Uh, really looking forward to today as we finish up our series on the Apostles' Creed. Um, if you haven't been tracking with us, we've been looking at uh, a couple of things. We've been looking at the, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. And, and then we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed over the, the last number of months. And uh, the reason we've been doing that is to to understand some of the the basic discipleship materials that have been used by the church for for hundreds if not thousands of years to to help to to um, grow new believers and to to stand as a as a, a statement of of the church's faith and to to stand um, as as a resilient witness to the the truth and inerrancy and timelessness of the the word of God as as our one authority. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here at Real Life Church. I'm married to Becky. We've got three children. Joel, who's just finished up his A-levels going on to university. Caitlin, who is going on to sixth form. And Isaac, who is in year four, moving on to year five. So, yeah, just as a, a quick summary of of the creed over the last few months as you know we've been looking closely at this and and it's it's a beautiful succinct summary of a of the essential teachings of of the christian faith and it's been used as a as a declaration for thousands of years by believers all around the world it's a, it's a helpful touchstone for for us which helps us to to stay clear on the teachings that are of primary importance to to the Christian church and it it has also served as a, a faithful guardian of the faith it's it's uh, served a purpose of testing the hearts and minds of of those who say they are, are Christian and it was forged over a, a number of years not in addition to the Bible but as a, a clarifying defense of biblical truth against all manner of distortions that that would threaten the safety of of God's children. A useful illustration, Stuart's used this illustration a lot, is is that the Bible is like the sun, and the creed is like the moon. It, it doesn't add anything to the the glory revealed in the Bible, and it's not creating its own truth, but rather it's reflecting the truth of of the Bible faithfully for us. It's, it's sure and certain. It hasn't been changed over the years to suit the evolution of culture. It is rock solid. And it's, it's that kind of certainty that we certainly need in, in uncertain times like these. It reminds us that when everything around us is shaken, God remains firm. It reminds us that the word of God remains true and is a reliable rock upon which we can build our lives. It's a reminder that as people and institutions around us waver and fall, that we are to remain faithful, that we are to remain firm, that we are not to forsake what we've been taught. And it stands as a reminder that we are not expected to do this alone. In fact, it reminds us that our God is Emmanuel, God with us, 
and, and that he has already done all the heavy lifting. And today, we finish up with the last three lines of the Creed, which focus on the, the hope that, that all Christians should have. If, if Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension is, is the core of our faith, then these three lines are a, a summary of what he has achieved through that, um, what he has achieved for his glory and for our good. And, and that is, is, is the accomplishment of, of salvation. And this is the way the creed chooses to sum it up. It says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And, and, and that is a, a three-line summary of the, the essence of, of salvation. Now, now, the truth is, it's three lines in the creed, but it is a massive topic. It's, it's huge, and I would never be able to, to cover it exhaustively in the next 25 minutes or so. But, but it is definitely one that all Christians should dive into. And um, if, you, if you start digging around, you'll see that there isn't one place in the Bible that teaches about salvation. And there isn't one word, but, but many, that all describe aspects of of salvation, what it is and how it's experienced and, and what it accomplishes immediately and over time. And, and I, would, I would really recommend that if you want to study further that, that you, you grab hold of a, a copy of J.R. Packer's um, book, 18 Words, the most important words you'll ever know. I couldn't find mine, so I can't show it to you now. If, if you're borrowing it, please, please let me know. It's, it's an easily accessible book that will guide you through some of the most important teachings in the Bible. You'll be blown away by what Jesus has done for you after reading this. And then if you can find a, a copy of, of this, Mark Wilkerson, uh, it's called Redemption. This one is, is quite edgy and deals with the practical outworkings of, of salvation in, in normal people's everyday lives. Jesus intervening in, in terrible situations and bringing healing and deliverance, setting the captives free. So yeah, it's, it's a huge subject that the Bible addresses throughout the Old and the New Testament. It, it uses a variety of images to describe God's rescuing works. Some of the words that ha are used are redemption, reconciliation, rescue, renewal, cleansing, forgiveness, justification, adoption, pacification, or eternal life. The Apostles' Creed packages all of these descriptions up in this, this one-headed term, forgiveness of sins. And, and Luke uses that, that very same phrase as, as a shorthand reference to the gospel message. While, while Paul tends to use the words justification or reconciliation to refer to the same gospel message. So when, when salvation is, is understood in its scope of past, present and future, and in the light of the staggering array of biblical images used for it, it is so much more than the rescue of a sinner's soul and, and so much more than fire insurance against hell. It, it includes the whole person, body, heart, mind, 
and soul. It can mean deliverance from enemies, from physical danger, from, from death, from disability, from demonic powers, from illness, from impurity, from poverty, from injustice, from social exclusion, false accusations, shame, and of course sin, and its consequences before God. Now, of course, ultimately what lies behind all of this misery is sin, with a big capital S, sin, which which corrupts us as much as it kills us. And sin affects everything around us. It affects the physical world as much as our spiritual state. And we see that. We see a beautiful world, but when we look at it closely, we know that everything is fallen and in decay. And salvation is deliverance from all that is fallen in us and all that is fallen around us. This isn't just about being forgiven and, and getting a one-way ticket to heaven when you die. So what I want to do is I just want to spend a, a few moments looking at when salvation happens. In the past, in the present, or, or in the future. And then I want to consider a, a few implications for us today as we continue to deal with the, the fallout of this global epidemic that has, has deeply affected so many people in, in so many different ways. So the first question then is, is when? When does salvation happen? And I, I thought it would, it would maybe be helpful if I, I shared a, a little bit of, of my story, of my salvation. It happened in... 1992. I remember being invited by some friends back in the day before mobile phones um, to come down with them to the beach in the evening. They were going to be meeting up under a pier in my hometown of Port Elizabeth and um, they, they essentially they, they just wanted to spend time singing songs and, and praying which at the time, I thought it was a little bit weird. I would have called myself a Christian. I would have been happy to say, yeah, I'm a believer. But I still thought it was pretty weird that, that a bunch of young surfers would want to go and hang out on the beach and, and sing songs to Jesus and pray with everyone watching. But anyway, I, I went along. And um, I, I can't tell you exactly what happened there, but but God broke into my life. He he stripped out so many walls that had built up over my teenage years and um, and and humbled me to the point where I was willing to to have a heart to heart with one of the guys there and, and um, ask them to to pray with me that I would become a Christian and I can honestly tell you that from that day on my, my life changed completely. At the time, I was at art school. I was uh, starting to, to study graphic design. Um, I was going out every night partying. I was um, hanging out with, with people with some really interesting views on, on life. Um, there, there was a lot going on. And, um, and the day after that, I walked back into art school and I was completely, completely different to the point where people were angry with me for, for the way I had changed. But before that, four years before that, in fact, when I was 14, my mum told me that if I wanted to get married in the um, 
Anglican church that I'd have to get confirmed. And part of confirmation was to, to go on a, a residential. Um, and on that residential, there was an evening where, where some of the leaders invited us to, to come to a prayer meeting that, that wasn't required, but they were encouraging. And, and you know what? Four years before I gave my heart to Jesus, I experienced God's presence in that meeting uh, in, in, a, in a way that I haven't experienced since. It was so deeply profound and it shook all of us, every single person that was in that room. And, and since that day, I have spoken to God every single day. And I've felt his presence in my life every single day since then. The four years up until that, that time under the pier, I didn't live a Christian life, but I knew God's presence. And you know what? Since, since, since 1992, I haven't looked back. It hasn't always been easy. I've, I've made loads of mistakes, but I can honestly say I know that Jesus loves me. I can also say that I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that Jesus saved me. It was all of him. It, was, it, was, it wasn't up to, to me. If it was up to me, it would never have happened. He rescued me. I wasn't looking for him in the way that um, I needed to. It was all Jesus. And I, I love him so much. But before he awakened my heart, I was completely oblivious to him. So 28 years ago since the pier, 32 years since that confirmation residential, that's when I gave my heart to Jesus. But the truth is that he gave himself for me 2,000 years ago. And, and I really wanted to start there because, because there is definitely a past aspect to salvation. Peter writes this. He says in, in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 through to 21, he says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, he was forsaken before, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So even before the foundations of the world, God had already planned for Christ to come and to die for your sake. And when he went to the cross 2000 years ago, when he died on that cross and took on all the sins of the world, he saw you. He saw every single detail about you. And not as you are now, but before you knew him and he died for you then. So your salvation happened long before you were even born in a, a very real sense. But then then there's also the truth that that I acknowledged what he did for me 2000 years ago under that pier. 
And for, for all of you, there was a, a point when you acknowledged what he did for you 2000 years ago. And, and the, there's perhaps some of you that are listening that, that, that are curious and, and you're listening in and you, you love church and you love what we, we, we talk about and you love what we do in the community. But the truth is you haven't acknowledged what he did for you 2000 years ago. But the truth is part of salvation is that. And that is, that is the, the present aspect of salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit um, coming into your life and awakening your heart and, and allowing you to see for the first time that, that these aren't just historical facts about someone who could be God, but he actually was. And, and that is a, a miracle of God. Acts 2 verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. And you know, in that day by day, those who are being saved, when that's happening, that's the Holy Spirit working. And Jesus is, is doing at least two things in people's hearts when they are being saved. The first thing is, is what, what we, we discussed. Paul uses a lot, a word that the Bible uses called justification. And the Bible tells us that, that we are blind and dead in our sin. It implies that we're incapable of, of seeing the, the devastating condition um, that, that we are in. And, and, and neither can we see the glory of God and, and his work in Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 2 verse 13, it says it this way. It says, and you were dead in the, tres in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It says that this is a condition that, that overcame us the day that our common forefather and mother choose to ignore God's teaching and rebel um, and listen to Satan. And Adam and Eve bore the consequences of their actions, and, and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and, and God's presence. And along with them, we were as well. And this is, this is what Christ has saved us from. There are many other promises. I've gone through a list of, of those that are a consequence of being saved. But primarily, Christ's salvation is about placing us back into the presence of God. Putting us back into right standing before God. Where we can stand without shame. Because when God looks at us, he sees his son. And this takes place in heaven. So even, even while you're living your less than perfect life in, in the here and now, and you're ashamed of your thoughts and actions in so many ways, at the exact same time, you are standing with Christ in heavenly places as a saint, spotless and clean, holy as can be, in the very presence of God. That is justification. This is about your position in heaven, 
It's your legal standing before God now. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 7, it, it goes on and it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that's one thing that he does. A second thing that he does is, is called sanctification. And, and this aspect of, of what Christ has accomplished through his saving work is, is that while, we, while he has seated us in, in heavenly places, he also sets to work on redeeming your heart. He, he sets to work on redeeming our hearts and our minds. He, he makes our hearts come alive. He enables us to see our condition and he enables us to see his, his glory. And, and then he uses these revelations to mold our heart. He causes you to hate your sin. He causes you to thirst for righteousness and to pursue a deeper relationship with him. This is called sanctification. This is, this is the long work of salvation that causes you to be a better reflection of your Savior every day. And you become more and more and more like him. And you'll never reach perfection. You'll reach perfection when you're one day with him in eternity. But every single day, the life of a saint is one of sanctification, where Christ is doing his saving work and, and changing our hearts, our minds and our actions to reflect him better to the world around us. And Philippians 2 verses 12 verse 13 encourages us with this. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what we should be obsessed with as, as believers. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be, be fretting over wealth or, or status or, or power or, or even health. The things that should obsess us are his love. The things that should obsess us are, are getting to know him better, despising our own flaws and asking him to remove them from you and, and being a good reflection of him and sharing the good news of what he's done for you with others. The word tells us to obsess on these things and then all those other things will come. It, Jesus says in Matthew 6 verses 31 through 33, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So we have the past. Christ, before the foundations of the earth, was set to die for us 2,000 years ago. And then we have the present where, where we acknowledge what Christ has done for us. And, and that happened at a point in our lives. But then we continue acknowledging that as we go through this process of sanctification, working out our salvation daily. And at, at the same time, we're immediately made holy and we're seated with Christ in heavenly, heavenly places. And then we have the future. Part of being a Christian is not just being saved for now, but waiting in eager anticipation and, and watching for a time when, when Jesus will return to establish his kingdom and unveil the new heavens and the, the new earth. And the time between now and then is, is one of patient endurance. It's one of faithfulness and pursuit of holiness and and um, Jude in in verses 20 through 21 says encourages us to do that he says but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life so we're faithful and we're in anticipation as we wait for for Christ's merciful return. And you know, sometimes when I, I listen to, to Christians describing what, what they are looking forward to in the future, it more or less sounds like an eternal spiritual existence in, in God's presence in, in heaven, a spiritual eternal life. Maybe there's some debate about what we'll be doing up there and, and with whom, but generally the description is one of eternal life in a, a spiritual way, a, a spiritual existence. But when we look at the words of the creed, and indeed the whole teaching of the Bible, we see that our future hope is, is somewhat different to this. That They're not just um, metaphors. They're, they're being quite literal about, about what they mean when, when they look at, at the future hope for, for Christians. And, and Michael Bird um, describes our future as life after life after death you see our, our real future hope is that if we die we get to be with jesus in heaven for a period of time until the day when jesus christ will return to earth and at that time those who have died in christ will will rise again and those who are still living will be raised up with them, not in a, a spiritual way, but in a, a new kind of physical spiritual way. In, in the same way that Jesus's body, when he was resurrected, was a glorified body, um, we would be resurrected in the same way, in some ways spiritual, in some ways um, supernatural and in other ways physical whole new reality and and we struggle to to describe that with words but yet it is the truth and at that time jesus will will judge all people rightly and he will finally dispatch satan and his cohorts and and free creation from the effects of our rebellion and bring about the culmination of of his plan in in what the bible describes as the new heavens and the new earth a, a kind of 
intermingling of the place where God resides and rules and and the place that he created and loves and said is good. And and that's the end of the picture. And it's a brief summary of of the real nature of the future future Christian hope of of a time when when we will once again live in the presence of our God in his creation not apart from it and and that we will play a part in administrating his creation with him just like Adam and Eve were meant to in the Garden of Eden after all when God had completed his creation work he looked at all that he had done and declared that it was good so wh what does that mean for us now as we're sitting at home in, in semi-lockdown trying to decide um, how we're meant to live our lives. Many of us feeling worn out, tired, exhausted, perhaps a little apathetic. Um, perhaps we've, we've let things slide, not just in our, our personal relationships and in, in our work, but in our relationship with Christ as well. What does all of this mean for us now? Well, consider for a moment with me. Have you ever thought about what salvation really means do you do you endure your present reality wishing the days away so that you can be with jesus finally in heaven what about the fact that there is a, a past and a, a present aspect to salvation that that jesus promises that you have been set free from the chains that bound you and that you have been called to a greater purpose, not in the future, but now. You have been saved from this present darkness and you've been saved to the mission of God. I would encourage you, as, as I have been doing over the last few days, spend some time asking God to reveal what he has saved you to, not just what he has saved you from and not just what will come when you one day die and are at peace with him. But why did he create you and save you and leave you on earth to live your life now? What is your purpose? Spend time with him. Check in with him and be encouraged. He has plans that will astound you. So listen to him and submit to him. And then secondly, for for those of you who are, are politically or, or socially minded, that's great. But can I ask you a question? When you feel bitter disappointment with the world, can you ask yourself why you feel this? Remember, Christ's salvation was not to the world, but, but from the world. And I just like to ask, is it possible that you're disappointed by the world because you've inadvertently placed your faith in the world and its institutions. You've placed your faith and your hope in the government, in the NHS, in, in the social welfare system. You've, you're bitterly disappointed with them because they have let you down. They've, they've broken your hope. They've broken your faith. Can I say that I would like to thank God that he, he shakes these things from time to time. And he reminds us that they are uncertain 
and that they are unreliable and and at the end of the day as good as they are and as wonderful as they are they are unable to save us perhaps you need to consider recommitting your faith to God and and God alone because he will he will never disappoint you thirdly a, a challenge for for you if you you're frustrated by your lack of growth in Christ i'd like to share two things with you and the first is this that if you're frustrated by your lack of growth in Christ this is evidence that you're in fact saved and you need to be encouraged by that because before Christ awakened your heart you were not even conscious of your need to grow in him you were oblivious to that and you were happily doing your own thing following the ways of the world but because he has saved you he has put inside of you a desire for things that are greater than we see on earth today and gives you a desire to be better than you are right now so be encouraged and then secondly a challenge are you doing what christ requires of you are you doing the simple things are you spending time with him in prayer are you spending time reading his word are you spending time in deep meaningful sincere fellowship with believers are you doing those things and then finally if you're not a christian you know when when i first gave my heart to to god in in 1992 and and even before that when i was 14 32 years ago i did not know everything about god about jesus about the holy spirit about the bible the old testament human history how religion and science relate the age of the earth how bad things happen to good people and so on and so forth in fact i still don't know all of it and i, I never will we all develop in knowledge and wisdom over time but but listen do not wait until you understand more before you decide to follow christ if he is tugging on your heartstrings now respond to him now you will never know enough and christ doesn't need you to know everything before he can save you all on you was that the god that i theoretically knew existed because of my upbringing had invaded my thinking and emotions 32 years ago in a way that i will never be able to understand he revealed how much he loved me and it broke me and 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 because of that i was willing to trust him and he has proven himself faithful and all i'm asking you to do is to respond to him as he does the same for you and to trust him you will never regret it if you want to respond to this in some way i'd i'd encourage you to get hold of a christian that you know and, and discuss it with them ask them to pray with you it may sound awkward but but i can bet you that they're al already praying for you and and they'd be overjoyed to to help you and stand with you as you as you went through that amen